0: Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
1: Welcome everybody to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn and I'm Doug Stewart and today we are joined by CJ Engel the editor of reformlibertarian.com. He's also an entrepreneur and has been published in a number of places including lurockwell.com, mises.org and you can definitely find him there as a regular editor of the Fedwatch series. Uh, reformlibertarian.com is a wonderful website and we highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great place to learn about fundamentals of libertarianism. Uh, great ideas about theology and especially if you're interested in reform theology uh, cj is an expert on that as well we are very happy to welcome him to the lci podcast here so thanks for joining us cj glad to be here thanks guys so first off let's just talk a little bit about reformlibertarian.com. Uh tell us how you got it started with it and a little bit about what you like to do with it there
2: well, like most uh, blogs, I started off by, you know, wanting to write a lot more than I actually was able to write on. And so I just created a regular old blogger um, domain and I just <laughs> started writing and I knew nothing at the time. And I just kind of went from there. And as I learned, I would continue to expand and expand until I was able to actually buy a domain that I thought you know, accurately represented what I wanted to say and, and talk about. So, you know, first it started like that with uh, zero readers over time. I began to develop things and actually come to positions that I could defend on a consistent basis. Um, and then I you know took it to the next level and, you know, worked on podcasts and got some pretty nice uh, community going on Facebook and getting making a lot of friends. Um. So it, it, you know, started small. It's it's getting bigger. And I was just looking at my statistics the other day, and I'm just surprised about how many similar minded people there are on the internet. When I got started, I thought I was one of the only Christian libertarians in the world, and then you come to realize that there's so many others, and it's a growing number every day. So it's just a great place for me to uh, express myself, to develop my own thinking, and to you know focus on you know whatever connections there are to be found on things related to religion and more specifically Protestant religion and, uh, you know, libertarian political theory. Awesome. And yeah, it's been a, it's been great to watch it grow and
1: and to see you adding new, new writers and to develop your Facebook group. And uh, there's a lot of fun things that you guys have going on there. It's really fun to see. Uh, And I'm, I'm just proud to be, you know, a a little bit of a part of that as best I can be as well. Um, So yeah, again, glad to, glad to watch it and glad to have you here. Um, one of the things that we wanted to bring in and talk about though is something that we've we've noted that you've you've had to deal with it a little bit more than we have at times and that's the ideas surrounding theonomic reconstructionism and so i, I want to begin though um, with a, a few definitions at first because as we talk about theonomic reconstructionism and libertarianism we can we can sometimes get a little confused as to what we're talking about at times and so i think it let's get some baseline definitions out there. So for our listeners sake, how about you from your point of view, CJ, why don't you define libertarianism in whatever manner you see fit at the moment? And then especially for us as Christians, what are the implications for that theologically for us?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think the libertarianism, when, when we talk about the definition of it, I think we should always start by asking, what are we engaging? What are we trying to accomplish when we, uh, you know, talk about or investigate political theory. I think that, you know, you can't just jump right into it because then sometimes just, you know, based on our, what you might call a status mindset, we kind of interpret political theory in light of our current political system. And then we get caught up with all kinds of things like, well, is it similar to republicanism or, you know, uh, democracy? Or, you know, how does the uh, representative uh, nature of our, um, you know, democracy fit into the whole equation and so i think you need to start farther back than that and ask the question well what are we actually trying to accomplish when we talk about political theory and without getting into the various options i think you know the conclusion at least that i found is that i think we can boil it down to we're trying to figure out um you know when is coercion uh, justified you know uh when is uh, when are we allowed to use physical um, aggression against other people, you know, what are, what, what acts of um, violence are legitimate and, and which are not legitimate. And I think those are the types of questions that we ask in political theory. So the conclusion of the libertarian is that the only times we're allowed to use force in a situation is in self-defense or, um, you know, possibly in response to someone that has previously ag- aggressed against the person or property of another individual other than that, um, you know, we, we have this phrase, the non-aggression principle. We're not allowed to a- aggress against the private property or body of some other individual for any other reason. So we can't just initiate violence. Rather, we can only use physical violence to defend ourselves or by way of prosecution um, in response to or after someone has previously used uh, violence on on you, so that's that's kind of the 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 summary statement of libertarianism. It has to do with rights, and it and it and it distinguishes between legitimate uses of force and illegitimate uses of force. So, what are
1: some of the touch points with our Christian point of view, our theology, and why that's Im- important to us as Christians?
2: I think for me, the the main connection here is that. You know, as as Christians, we have um, a worldview, right? We have we have a system of of beliefs, and we want to um, convince others of these beliefs, right? Because we we you know adhere to the idea that we're actually saved by our beliefs, right? We're saved by faith, and so in you know we and if and if we are saved, and we want others to be saved, and we want to have other people believe the same things that we believe, and so the tools that we've been given to help in that are persuasion and argumentation, right? We're allowed to argue, defend ourselves intellectually and persuade other people to, you know, believe in the gospel. But what we're not allowed to do and what doesn't help promote the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is to use the sword, right? Is to use physical violence to initiate other people's rights and force them to believe, to, to force a confession out of their mouth or change their behavior by way of physical violence or threats of violence, or at a more systematic level, using the government to do such violence for you, right? So these, these are illegitimate ways of spreading the gospel. But as Christians, I think we should follow Christ's example and use persuasion and peaceful means. So in other words, a... Forced religion is hardly a religion at all in this case. Right. So if religion means worldview, right? if it's a system of beliefs, you can't force anyone to believe something. You can definitely force someone to say they believe. Yeah, you can definitely make them mimic your words. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things I would say if someone held a gun to my head, but God isn't interested in such outward acts, right? He's only interested in the heart, and that can't be changed by physical violence. Right. So theonomic reconstructionism
1: is something that perhaps some people are unfamiliar with as a, as a term uh, with our listeners, but maybe uh, maybe they've heard certain ideas either on the internet or, or by certain speakers or from their churches. And because it, it kind of has made the rounds, especially in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, so can you give us a good definition of, of what theonomic reconstructionism is and perhaps some of the fundamental assumptions and, and, and eventually we'll get into how this kind of relates to libertarian ideas.
0: And you also may want to include what other names of uh, or buzzwords that people who are theonomists uh, may use um, to help people understand, like, when they're reading something they may not, they may, it may not be obvious that they're reading a theonomy website or something like that, even, you know, because the views may be similar to what they're used to hearing, they're just hearing them in a different way
2: right yeah exactly and and, you know that's and that's part of the difficulty too is is that you know and this isn't just a problem with with theonomists but in general a lot of people from different camps will use the same phrases but mean something totally different and this is actually you know a really a really dangerous thing that people will use to create revolutions right the socialists took over the word liberal um you know at the end of the 19th century right and so we have to always be aware of okay you're using that phrase, but what's the context you're using it in? What are, what are the underlying assumptions surrounding that phrase that's going to affect whether or not I can actually agree with you? So, you know, that's, that's always a, a key point, but I think, I think the best way to summarize it is just, is just in the question of whether or not a government today is, um, mandated to apply the mosaic civil laws to present day society. Um, So I think it's important to clarify it like this, because sometimes people will say, well, um, you know, do we want God's law or man's law? But, you know, that's such a vague phrase that we have to get very specific about it. And I think the specific differentiation between the, well, just even there, we can talk about the differences between a a general theonomy and reconstructionism. But I think that... um, The theonomist would be specific about the Mosaic civil law. So what that means is, you know, in the Bible, there were was the Mosaic covenant that that God made with Moses on behalf of the Israelite people. Um, And, you know, every you know, those have, you know, have even those who have never read the Bible, they they're aware of the book of Leviticus and all the myriad laws that regulate the way that we interact with each other and, you know, interact with, um, you know, everything that have to do with with Israel civil life, right? So there's so many laws. These were the civil laws regulating Israel and they were Mosaic because they were underneath the Mosaic covenant. We could distinguish between, you know, the Mosaic covenant specifically and laws outside of that, you know, such as, you know, when God was commanding Adam and Eve to do such and such, that wouldn't be obviously a Mosaic law. So specifically the debate is over whether or not the, 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 the civil laws of what, what older theologians refer to as the mosaic economy, you know, whether or not these civil laws under the mosaic economy are mandated for governments to put in practice today in the 21st century, but more theologically specific under the economy of the new covenant. Okay, so that's the whole covenant paradigm is going to be very important as we get into the differences and why I'm not um, a, a theonomist and why I don't think um, the libertarian you know, should be a theonomist.
1: So is it, is it important to differentiate theonomy and Reconstructionism? Are those two words that need to be parsed separately? Or are, when we say theonomy, we mean Reconstructionism as well?
2: Yeah. So that's a good question. So, um, you know, historically, I think a broader phrase would be something like theocracy, right? The law of God, you know, is, um, is the, is, is the law for, for, for man, right? The law of God is to be the thing that, that, uh, determines what is criminal and what is not criminal, right? Theocracy, God is in charge or God's law. Um, it was actually a later uh, theonomist, uh, a reconstructionist, a stu- not a student, but a follower of, um, you know, a man by the name of R.J. Rushduni, who was sort of the father of what's called reconstructionism. So R.J. Rushduni was in the early 20th century, and he coined this phrase Christian reconstruction on the basis that um, the Christian life is not something that's just focused on the kingdom of heaven, but it has a holistic aspect to it, which we all agree with. Uh, I think, but, you know, his point was we need to reconstruct society in light of the fact that um, these, you know, these components of, of Christian life are going to become the mainstream before Christ comes back. That's, or you know, that's another, you know, that's part and parcel of what's called the post-millennial view of, you know, eschatology. See, these are big words, but all that means is that um, Jesus is going to come back after this thousand year reign uh, or not the thousand year reign, but this thousand year, um, you know, period where the church and God's law are, um, you know, mainstream, they're they're the, they're the, you know, they're the operating framework that under which society has been organized. So that's the, that's the post-millennial view. So reconstruction aims to reconstruct everything from law, economics, government, um, philosophy, um, you know, every, every every component to life has to be reconstructed according to the Christian worldview, right? That was the case, the thesis of R. J. Rushdoony. Theonomy was a phrase that was coined later by one of his followers named Greg Bonson. Bonson's probably the most important popularizer, um, or, you know, or one of them. Gary North would be the other one. But uh, Greg Bonson's the one that coined the phrase theonomy and really put it into use. So you could use either one. I think what I would say is Reconstruction is more specific to Rush Duny's, um books, and theonomy is more of the general term of applying the Mosaic civil law to today.
1: So that's a good point, and something I hadn't realized uh, even in my own studies that Bonson was the guy that really popularized the use of the of the word theonomy in in this type of philosophy. So there's some there's some good history there to remember as as you go forward. And you you know it's interesting you mentioned that there are some appealing aspects. This whole whole the holistic uh, view of Christianity is something that you know a lot of us who care about theology we really want that to be part of our lives we want there to be a permeation of our theology in all sorts of things of what we do but this is maybe a little over overdone as it is and uh and that may be part of the problems with one of the problems with it even though it is appealing are there other appealing aspects though to theonomic reconstructionism that like why why does it attract people
2: you know, that's, that's a good psychological question, but I I think, you know, there's, if I could point out to a number of motivations, just one of them for my own life. You know, I, when I was dealing with these things, I began to see the importance of having a Christian input right into our political theory and the, the vocabulary that is used by the theonomists can be tempting for someone that's trying to, to, to accomplish this, right. That's learning about the, the, the possibilities of Of the components of his political theory. And I think that you know one of the most compelling things is just just the way that it's it's um marketed. you know, that I don't mean that in a bad way, right? But everyone has to have their way of convincing people uh, of their position. So the way that it's marketed is, is just, look, we have to choose between God's law and man's law and and what's better, the mind of God or the mind of man, right? So that's a very simple way of putting it, and that can be compelling, right? Well, we don't want, we you know we think that God's mind is more um, knowledgeable and obviously more truthful, and so therefore we want to to use that framework instead of whatever man can conjure up. After all, man has conjured up all kinds of disastrous and devastating systems, um, you know, political frameworks and and governments and you know the state. You know, the, the mind has done some very devastating things for humanity. Therefore, uh, there's got to be a better way, right? So that would be kind of what's compelling about it. Um, You know, unfortunately, I don't think that really gets into the heart of the matter, and it can be misleading if we just stop there and don't go deeper into that. But I think that would be the most compelling thing for Christians if they're saying, look at the consequences of doing things man way. There's got to be something better. The theonomists are, you know, preaching the idea that they've, uh, you know, are pushing God's law um, that's got to be a whole lot better than you know the, you know the the tragedies of state socialism and fascism and all these other things, right? So I think that would be the, the you know the most compelling, at least for me, and I think for a lot of christians and, until you dig deeper and you find out you know there's different ways to parse this, and there's better options, yeah, you mentioned
1: you know that this this question that can come up, you know, divine, do you want to choose God's law or do you want to choose human autonomy? You know, you get to choose, and it does seem like it's well. It's kind of putting you as a Christian in in sort of a trap position, right? It's like, well, you obviously as a Christian, you need you 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 definitely want to be on God's side, so you don't want to be on the side of you know evil man.
0: And there's the assumption that they already know what God's law or God's quote unquote side is. Like, yeah, it's so it, it, in the question is taken for granted that that whatever they have in mind is. Here's what God's law is, right? Yeah, and and so,
1: you know, CJ, I'm wondering, you know, you, you've kind of, you've hinted to this, but how do you respond to this inquiry? I mean, is, is it as is much of a trap as it kind of seems to me?
2: Yeah, so, I, you know, you're referring to, I have a, you know, a great little piece that can be referred to, you know, whenever the listener wants to, it's called combating the theonomist trap. And the basic idea here is, look, we do want to choose between God and man, you know, and but, but the problem is that. Um, what God is not happy with is us misinterpreting His law, right? So, you know, He gives us right. this, this this choice, this trap, God or man, and we come back and we say, "Well, God should be chosen before man's will." But God is not happy when we misunderstand or misexegete His His law, right? So that's the first thing, and it, it's a little bit, um, you know, I used to like that, phrase, that 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 choice. You know, I thought it was real catchy, but it it is kind of sneaky, and I don't think it really. Um, gives a lot of, um, uh, you know, opportunity for, you know, the other side to actually give their, to you know, engage. Their true, yeah, to, to, to engage. I mean, it, it's a trap and it's, and it's fine. I use traps all the time when I talk to socialists or other you know, varieties of statists, you know, but uh, uh, you know, yeah, the but point is freaking. that it's, it's but, not really a trap because right, right. Right. So it, it's not really a trap because that you have to, that's just a phrase God's law. You know, once you actually define what that means, that's when we can find our differences and our disagreements and actually dissent from the theonomist position right so uh, the the point the point there is that you know yes we have to choose between god or man that's fine but what is god we have to define it we can't just use a bumper sticker phrase right yeah so
1: this this kind of flows into a good question about you know law and gospel this is a paradigm that if, you know for those of for us those of our listeners who are very, you know, into studying historical theology, the long gospel paradigm is something that you know we, we hear about from Luther and and from before then too in various ways. But it's something that has had great influence on us as Protestants, especially. And this this is a particularly important paradigm, even to the TR position, the theonomic reconstructionist position as well. Um, can you describe this for us and uh, the law and gospel paradigm briefly, and and how theonomic reconstructionism kind of mistakenly applies it
2: here? Well, I actually don't think it's um, it's directly as relevant as as one might think, but it is indirectly relevant in the sense that um, there's there's different theories of um, or different traditions, I sh- I might say, of of um, how the different covenants in the Bible relate to each other. So. Um, you know, my own position is that the new covenant, right? Everything uh, post Christ basically uh, is the new covenant and it's the covenant of grace. And um, it's it's contrasted with, this is important, it's contrasted with the old covenant, which is the covenant of works. Well, the theonomists actually don't believe that. They believe that these this whole um, old and new covenant are actually not two different covenants. They're actually the same covenant. They're both the covenant of grace and they have different administrators okay so my position is that the old covenant is a separate and distinct covenant from the new covenant the -hmm. the administrator of the old covenant would be moses and the administrator of the new covenant would be um christ but for them uh it's the same covenant there's just different administrations of it so christ is now the better me the better administrator of that same covenant of grace but for me there's a contrast between law and grace law was what was revealed to reveal was what was, uh, you know, instilled to uh, reveal man's sin. And then grace came along because man proved that he can't, um, you know, get away from his and he can't save himself and he can't uh, obey the the strict standards of God by his by his doings, right? So therefore, Christ has to be there um, as a mediator And it has to be a graceful relationship because uh, we can't, nothing we do can satisfy God. Okay. So that's, that's that contrast between law and grace. The theonomists think the whole thing is the covenant of grace and the law was given as, as a graceful um, blessing for, for the Israelites. And so even it too is. Um, you know, a sign of grace. The law itself is, is, you know, graceful. It's a graceful act of God. So they don't have that sharp contrast in their covenant theology. The whole thing is one covenant of grace and the law, therefore, since the covenant is still in existence, the law, the civil law is actually still applicable because the covenant never went away. But for me, the law, uh, the the old covenant did go away. And therefore, how can you apply a piece of a covenant that is no longer in existence? Right, okay.
1: So, what other theological problems do you kind of perceive as being, you know, related to theonomy here? Is there anything else that is a? Uh, and we've talked about this, the long law uh, and the covenants. We've talked a little bit about post-millennial thinking. Um, what other theological problems do you perceive as uh, as
2: as some problematic here? Well, I think I think those are the main things. And, and really, this is what I this is what I say. You know, whenever I talk about it, is that. A lot of this really does come down to how you're going to frame the the nature of covenant theology. I mean, there's nothing much you can say if you believe the covenant of today is the exact same covenant of, of Mosaic times. You know, if if the law was given for the covenant and if the covenant is still in existence, it, it makes logical sense to keep the same laws, right? Unless, and, and this is part of their, um, you know, their hermeneutic, right? Unless there is an explicit abrogation of a specific law. There's no reason why we need to throw it away. So that's part of the thing. Whereas, you know, for, for my framework, there's no reason we should assume that it's kept in because it's a whole different covenant, right? So really, a lot of this does boil down to covenant theology because it's going to drive the way that we interpret the applicability of the old. One of the things that I've experienced when talking
0: to what appear to be theonomists on, you know, social media, Facebook and things like that is they... They quote a lot of verses and they connect a lot of verses to each other why why can't we just quote verses back at them to you know quote unquote disprove their position i mean why can't we throw something from hebrews or galatians i mean why is that an ineffective strategy to to make the conversation not necessarily like you know win the argument per se but at least have a productive argument by you know quoting verses back at them i mean there's there seems to be a lot of verses in Hebrews, especially, and in Galatians, and if there are any theonomists out there listening, you're probably thinking, yeah, but you're just, you know, you just don't understand what it means. I mean, so, tell us a little bit about your experience, maybe,
2: in in Bible verse (laughs) swapping, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so that's a great question, And, and just in general, I think we're all tempted to do that, right? You have a verse, I have a verse, and we can throw them at each other all day, and see who comes up with the most verses in defense of their position. I think that we can do that for a whole number of different issues, you know, whether it's Calvinism versus Arminianism or, you know, um, (laughs) grace and law distinction or eschatology, right? Uh, Soteriology, you can do that. Everything from angels to the church to baptism. The problem is that these verses are always interpreted from a more general framework. And so I think you have to get to the root of the matter because it's not like these theonomists have never read Hebrews 6 or Galatians 3 or anything like that, right? They've all read them. They just interpret them according to their own framework. So um you know and and so you know we we do the same thing and I think that we need to first talk about, you know, what how how do we interpret these verses in light of our more general understanding of how the how the two covenants are are put together. I think you have to start at that more general level because each individual verse doesn't necessarily speak for itself. Scripture has to interpret scripture. And therefore, you know, then this is a this is a problem too when you talk about Romans 13, right? People always start their political theology with Romans 13. But there's, you know, and Norman, I know you've talked a lot about this, there's so many other places with implications for political theology right there's so many other places in the bible that we can just throw verses at each other all day first we have to have more of a general framework and then interpret hebrews 6 and hebrews 3 in light of that right so you know you know a great example of this is is the calvin you know calvinist arminian debate well the, the calvinist has romans 9 and he could throw that passage around to the arminian all day but it's not like they've never heard of it Right. They, they've heard of it. They just have a different way of interpreting it based on their based on their, you know, uh, you know, other convictions. Right. So um, and, and I definitely think that, you know, using verses like, you know, Hebrew six. And I think that you, you can use that and just ask them, you know, what do you think about this verse in light of you know, what you're saying? Is there any contradiction there? And I think that is helpful. But we also need to remember that they're approaching these verses. They're interpreting them based on their previous notions of how the Bible fits together in general.
1: CJ, we've already mentioned that there is a postmillennial eschatology that's associated with uh, theonimus here. Um, how significant is it to the theonimus position? And is there like how how deeply does this run through their thinking? And and what are the implications that it kind of brings forward here?
2: It's a difficult question because um, you know, t- technically speaking, one doesn't have to to you know to believe in a post millennial framework in order to adhere to the um, you know applicability of the old covenant, I don't think. Um, at least I've never seen a real consistent, you know, demonstration why there's a logical necessity there. But it but, does seem like it's so, it's really common amongst oh, it's, the hard. Yeah, I, I would say I would say 95, 97% of them, you know, and, and definitely a hundred percent of its leaders, right? Yeah. Uh, the reason the reason for that is because, you know, for them The kingdom of heaven is not something that's strictly spiritual right it's not something that's um outside of this world it's something that's soon going to enter this world and have you know severe strict and and physical ramifications right and 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 under the post-millennial framework that's part and parcel of preparing the world for the return of christ preparing the law the civil, uh, the civil institutes, the church itself, um, for Christ to come down and lead it physically. That's part of the whole transition. And so therefore, if you're going to run a society based on this thing, you've got to have a legal system and the legal system of course is going to be, um, the very legal system that God put into effect, you know, 2000 years ago. And by 2000 years ago, I mean, 4,000 years ago.
1: The, the effect of, of the belief seems to be that, that they, as Christians, are responsible for building the kingdom of God, not in a spiritual sense, you know, as most of us who have, I think, the, we'll call it the, the, more, the more commonly held belief then, is that the kingdom of heaven is already but not yet. That there is a part of it that is within us and that we, it, is, it is coming forward through us by the changing of the Holy Spirit of our hearts. Um, it emanates from us in our behavior and our interact interactivity with other people, especially through the church. and that it so that's the already, but it's also not yet. You know we we have a hope for the future that uh, that at the the second coming of Christ uh, that the world is changed. and what that looks like could, could you know a variety of different things could could come to pass. and that's not my business necessarily to decide which one of that it, it is. that's God's business. but we know that it's coming. Uh, this, Post-millennial belief in particular here, it, it, it's even different than some other postmillennial uh, beliefs, in that it it that they're literally trying to, physically bring forward the the, like you said the institutions
0: that will prepare for the coming of christ which
1: is a very different way of thinking about the second coming
0: i want to add to that that if for libertarians who are theonomists, how do they expect to accomplish this without the use of violence or without like where does their sort of anti-state bias how does that complement what norman just described
2: yeah, so you know, first of all, I do think there's uh, there's kind of a spectrum of our involvement in the in the uh, preparation for the second coming, right? So there's some people that are much right, more yeah. active in how they're supposed to prepare the way, and there's some people that it, where it's a little bit more passive, right? So that's that's Norman's point, and I and I agree with it. I don't have too much more of a further comment on that. But, um, you know, you did mention what, what, what are the libertarians who are theonomic do about that uh, That difficulty? Um, you know, first of all, I actually don't think it's possible to be a theonomist and a libertarian. I think one is really ah. uh, stressing the bounds of <laughs> proper exegesis to, to say that everything in the civil law of the Old Testament was voluntary, which is what they would have to believe in order to keep their libertarianism pure, right? I don't yeah. think that you can actually actually uh, hold to that uh, you know generally speaking i think that it's okay to say that a theonomist or a theonomic uh framework allows for a smaller government a less invasive government in our lives at least economically than our current status society but i don't think uh, logically speaking that there is a you know a possibility of having both of these at the t- same time i do think there was initiation of force against the property rights of, of persons and their property in the theonomic system um, that's going to lead to other objections by the theonomist and you know if you guys don't bring them up i could point out one yeah. of them it comes up immediately but hey do it <laughs> um, i i think that, i don't think you can be both i think that the libertarian is strictly and consistently against the uh, intervention of not just the government but any individual uh, the intervention of anybody against his his property rights um, and the theonomist I think has to decide whether to he's make exceptions going to, yeah they have to make exceptions and, and you know and the framework is, is different so anyways the the objection that the theonomist is going to bring up is is that hey you know, if you know it, you're complaining that there, that the theonomic system allows for interventions into man's property rights, but that means that you're choosing um, the so-called rights of man over the just law of God, which implies, dear libertarian, that you are um, you know calling God's law less just than um, you know your libertarian law, right? So that's that's the objection, and of course the answer to that is. Um, that, that God's law is just in the sense that it was um, it was what he commanded of the individuals under that covenantal framework. So people are, are acting justly when they obey God's commands. But if those specific commands are no longer applicable, then we can't say they're just to enforce today. Um, You know, then there's the logical incompatibility with his other commands, which is, you know, you know, summarized by things like, you know, the commandment that we shouldn't initiate or that we shouldn't murder, which as uh, Charles Hodge and John Gill and other theologians have said imply, even Calvin said this, implies that man is not allowed to initiate for all kinds of force, right? Hans Senholtz, the Austrian economist said the same thing. So there's a good tradition of using that covenant as a a blanket statement against the initiation of, of, of force. So the the moral law,
1: in a sense, implies libertarianism, is what you're saying.
2: Well, yeah. So let me talk about that. So you know, one of the things that I think that theonomists ignore is um, the classical, what's called the you know the threefold division of the law. Okay, and this is a tricky one because um, you know they say okay. You know, Mr. Libertarian, you've got your your what you're saying is that you, um, you know, you're going to renounce the applicability of God's law today. Does that mean, therefore, that you think uh, murder is fine, lying to your parents is fine, all these things? Right. But the answer to that is that we make a distinction between the eternal moral law. That's a transcendent law. um, that it's not it's not bound by a specific covenant, but is rather a command on Christian on, on individuals from Adam to the last man. Right? There's this moral law, also called natural law, that is that sits above the covenantal context uh, con, context and isn't bound by it. Okay, so that's the moral or natural law. Calvin uh, e- equated the two phrases. Okay, so in in Protestant you know Reformed history moral law is the same as natural law, and this is a different type of natural law than other traditions but nevertheless by natural law we just mean the law that's um that that's uh independent of the positive law or the law that's uh you know bound by a specific covenantal context so we distinguish between that natural law and the positive laws which include the mosaic civil law that's why it's always important that we Define the reconstructionism by the qualifier mosaic because it allows us to later come back and distinguish between moral and uh, civil or or positive laws, um, so then we get into something called e- general equity, which is the the tool that allows us to distinguish between uh, or take the um, the ongoing or eternal truths out of the civil law. So if a civil law said, you know, if if uh, you know if if the husband kills his wife Beth, uh, he's going to receive forty lashes, right? That's the civil law, okay? That's the positive civil law. The moral law that comes out of this is people aren't allowed to kill each other. So see, there's a general equity. We take the underlying principle out of this very specific case and we make it applicable to everybody of all time, right? So we don't say, so the civil law says the husband isn't allowed to kill his wife lest he receive 40 lashes. That's the positive law. That that means that today we aren't required to give someone 40 lashes for killing his wife. But the general principle of that law is that people shouldn't kill each other. And that's the moral principle that we're going to take out of that um and and apply and make it uh, an ethical um stipulation about about you know human action
0: well it sounds like you're you're reading the old testament in light of the gospel when you apply those kinds of when you read the
2: scripture that way yeah absolutely i am (laughs) so i think that i think (laughs) naturally i i think that the new is the clarity i think the new clarifies the old i think what was dim before what was confusing and blurry has been clarified by the gospel and suddenly everything is much more clear and we can go back and, and look at what it really means in light of um, the fulfillment of all those things. So you're saying that Jesus is a better mediator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to quote some scripture and just kind of without identifying which one, I can just quote them yeah, all and, long. and if I say no, if I say no, then you can as a
0: heretic. <laughs> well one of the things well, that one of the things that i'm noticing is is it seems like and, and again we don't have a theonomist on here so again if you're listening and you are one and we, you feel like we're being unfair that's fine we can we can have a conversation and, and maybe get a guest on but my my initial impulse is to think there's a very huge gap in context or let me say it this way there's a there's no context to the, when the Mosaic law, law was written, in what century, to which people, under what circumstances. And it's just assumed that this is our book for today, rather than going back and saying, Oh, okay, well, this was written to ancient Israelites who had a, were under covenant with, with Yahweh, and we are followers of Jesus, and how do we read that sacred text that Jesus saw? as a sacred text like it it just it just seems to me devoid of context am i being unfair i mean maybe you agree because i know you're not a theonomist but i mean is there well
2: i think i think that's you know possibly true for you know people have just come into this and 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 know it at a popular level i think that though that you know theonomists key leaders you know anyone from rj to Gary North, to Greg Bonson and James Jordan. I think all of them are kind of, um, they took these things into account. I think that they took the difficulties of the nature and applicability of the covenants into the equation when they were when they were um, trying to solve these difficulties, I, I I do think that that I think that they had good intentions at heart, but I do think that you're right. I think at a popular level, sometimes the nuances and nature of shifts in the covenant over the course of redemptive history becomes kind of background noise, and they don't pay attention to it. Um, so I would say that's true for some and I definitely have recognized that you know online um and in conversations and stuff but I just to be fair I think that its leaders do recognize you know these these components
0: I just want to follow up with something a little earlier you mentioned that you you don't quite see the compatibility between theonomic reconstructionism and libertarianism what what would their defense be in in why it's come i mean Christian libertarians we have to go through this defense of why it's you know, compatible to be a Christian and a libertarian. So obviously they've got, you know, we understand that people don't understand why we think it's compatible. And so we, you and I, the three of us are sitting here thinking it's not compatible. Uh, what is their, what is
2: their defense? I think that they define libertarianism a little bit uh, looser than I do. I think they define it in kind of a vague, um, you know, you know, uh, man needs to be free from the government sort of way um, without getting precise about what it means um, so I think that's one component of it. I, I think the other part, too, is they're trying to, they, they've fallen for the theonomic trap, right? And they don't know how to properly respond to the trap. And so they just accept the fact that they have to choose between, um, you know, God's law and man's law. So therefore, you know, f- for piety's sake, they choose God's. And they also appreciate the developments of of libertarianism in a general, as a general movement. And I think that they want to push two together you know, the problem with being precise is it can sometimes force you to have to make difficult decisions. And I think that when we define libertarianism in a very strict way, I think that it, by necessity, um, excludes the possibility of believing in, you know, the, uh, the theonomic um, conclusions. The other thing too, though, I, I think that we don't necessarily need to show the differences between libertarianism and uh, the the application of theonomy. If, if we can just root out theonomy just as a more general, you know, biblical framework question, we, you know, so there's my, my point there is that we don't necessarily have to sh- show that they must choose biological necessity. Um, uh, the nature of the- theonomy includes um, actions of violence against property rights. I don't think that we have to necessarily show that uh, we can. I think it's definitely doable. I've done it before myself, but I think just by exposing the false, the, you know, the misunderstood nature of covenants, I think is a much better and easier um, thing to do. At least it's less time consuming to, uh, to start there.
1: Okay. So that's, that's really good. And so I'd like to kind of conclude here with some, the the kind of quick takeaways that people who are listening can, you know, go away with and remember, for when they're getting when they get into that conversation with a theonomist or when they encounter some of their writings and they're trying to remember some of the you know foundational things that we've talked about today. What are some of those quick points that um, that anybody who's listening can kind of take away today, you think? I think for for me, at least the first one is that we really want to be clear about our definitions, especially about what is what does libertarianism really encompass? And we've talked about that already, that it's all it is fundamentally about uh, how we deal with conflicts, how we deal with the appropriate use of force. Um but what are some of the other uh, things that you would you kind of take away from it from here uh, and and help hope that people would remember CJ?
2: I think the biggest thing for me is that we are under the economy of a new and better covenant. It's not just that we have a better administrator. Of a covenant but it's actually that the covenant has been um it's been ended it's been abrogated i think that that it's it's over with and i think that there's a new and better covenant that we need to recognize is better not just because it has a better leader but also because the features of it are so much better it offers salvation you know, the Old Covenant did not promise salvation. The Old Covenant promises a relationship, if you're in that covenant, it promises a relationship with Christ. And I think that the New Covenant being a different covenant really sets the groundwork for us understanding um, how the Mosaic Law fits for today. We can draw general principles of it and we can learn about the nature of God by reading those things, but we don't need to use... Um, you know, forced to apply those same civil laws to society today, I think it's a distraction from the gospel. So the biggest thing I think is, you know, for me is that we live under the economy of a, of a much better covenant. I think that libertarianism properly defined necessarily uh, excludes the possibility of um holding to a theonomic position at the same time. So those are, you know, two important things. I think the other thing too, is that we need to focus on the, you know, um, spiritual nature of the kingdom of heaven and not focus on making the world a better place as a, um, as a fruit of our uh christianity i think that making the world a better place for our kids is a great thing you know i i love talking about culture and things like that too but i think that it's a separate issue from the specific nature of the kingdom of heaven so those are the three things that i would take away
1: good all right so one of the last things we want to do here then is make sure that everybody knows exactly where they can go find you and your writings and to uh, give them further things to read and think about so Ah, uh, tell us about how to find you and contact you on the internet, if that's all right.
2: Uh, you can probably find me on Facebook, and um, I you know find me at any time. Look for CJAY, C-J-A-Y is how I stylize my name. Um, C J Ingle and reformlibertarian.com is is my primary website, so you can always find contact information there. But feel free to message me or email me, or pretty easy to get a hold of.
1: Excellent. And so, yeah, def- definitely take a look at the Reform Libertarian uh, Facebook group and you can search for that. And that's a, a great place to join in, in, in some good conversation. And uh, we look forward to uh, ever so much more great work from you, CJ. And we, we enjoy your, everything you guys are doing. And so we uh, are very, again, very thankful to have you on on the show today. Thanks, guys. So, finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can always reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.